This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Protecting sources is a fundamental obligation for journalists. This week we talked to one who quit when his employer couldn't keep a promise to one source who offered information off the record, but which ended up being aired in court. He says we now need new laws to keep things truly confidential, and we ask an expert where they do have such laws. Is he right? But first, after plenty of post-Rugby World Cup comment like this... Rugby isn't cool. It can still be played well, but too often it isn't. What can the media do to help turn it around, especially those who pump millions into the game for broadcast rights? Good evening. Sam Kane says the support he's received from All Blacks fans following his red card has meant a heck of a lot. The team returned home today, not as the champions that hoped to be, but nevertheless to a hero's welcome. That was News Hub at 6 on Wednesday, witnessing Captain Kane and his All Blacks getting an empathetic welcome back at the airport, and not the caning the All Blacks might have expected in the past for failing to bring back the trophy. And even though this was fully four days after the Rugby World Cup final, it led the News Hub bulletin that night ahead of this. Some victims of the March 15 terror attack didn't receive medical treatment until half an hour after the terrorist had left the scene. CCTV footage from outside Alnor Mosque was played to the coronial inquest today, showing the length of time the gravely injured and dying were left without first aid. And the All Blacks' return even came ahead of this in the news. Israel has confirmed a major explosion in a Gaza refugee camp that killed dozens of civilians was from one of its airstrikes. The Defence Force says it was targeting Hamas militants in the area and killed one of the group's leaders. On this week's Midweek Media Watch last Wednesday, Hayden Donnell looked at how the war in Gaza seems to be slipping down the agenda already for some news media outlets here, even though the media themselves are in the line of danger. Victim of a bombardment, our journalist says she can no longer feel her legs. That and much more in this week's Midweek Media Watch with Hayden Donnell. If you missed it, it's on the Media Watch page of the RNZ website, our section of the RNZ app, or you'll find it for free wherever you get your podcasts. Now, earlier this week on Monday, TVNZ Seven Sharp host Hilary Barry teased viewers in a One News ad break with this. And then on Seven Sharp, it may feel like an impossible task, but how do we draw a line under Rugby World Cup 2023 and move on? Now at this point, Media Watch was expecting someone like a media-friendly psychologist to offer strategies for those struggling to cope with a close-run rugby thing. But instead, Seven Sharp went to TVNZ's own rugby presenter, Scotty Stevenson, and he didn't really talk about how to move on from the All Blacks' defeat. He just aired the frustration about what had turned out to be a lacklustre spectacle for a sporting showpiece. It was mistake-riddled, let's be honest. Uh, it was very stop-start, lots of interventions from uh, television match official Tom Foley. Um, and it just felt, a lot of the time, the game just couldn't find its own rhythm. So maybe that's why fans are a little bit frustrated. And earlier that day, his TVNZ colleague Andrew Saville told Newstalk ZB this. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, <coughs> excuse me, bottom line is it wasn't a great advertisement for rugby, however... And the man Andrew Saville was talking to there on ZB, Mike Hosking, had already aired his own opinion on the matter. Rugby isn't cool. It can still be played well, but too often it isn't. Yes, the All Blacks loss, but not as badly as rugby did. But was anybody saying any of this here in 2011, after an even more low-scoring one-try slugfest in the wet and dark in Auckland, when the All Blacks ended up one point ahead in a Rugby World Cup final?
What, for instance, would Sky Sports have made of one of the 2011 winners, Israel Dag, telling Sky viewers during its own live coverage that the final was a snorefest, not good enough for a showpiece spectacle. This is our showpiece event. It's been overshadowed by a couple of people. Well, I had other names for them, but that are just taking in their own hands, taking the glory and gloss away from the players that have worked their absolute butts off to get out there. And there's people out there that are spitting absolute tax. And that was Israel Dag at half-time, claiming the referees had already ruined it. Later, on his own radio station, SENZ, Israel Dag said, you can see why people switch off from the game. It's boring as hell. And he's not the only one who's been saying these things lately. On the Between Two Beers podcast last week, for example, the current All Blacks and Black Ferns performance coach Wayne Smith said that rugby just can't go on like this. I think it's frustrating a lot of people, not just people like me. And if you it can't carry on like this... And just two days before the Rugby World Cup final, on the academic website The Conversation, Clive Thompson from the University of Cape Town's Labour Development and Governance Unit wrote that an early red card could ruin the final. The spectacle is lost whenever there is a mismatch in numbers, he said, presciently arguing for more benefit of the doubt. But it turns out world rugby is not really focused on better rules right now, but in giving us more of what we now get. On Tuesday, world rugby's plans to expand the World Cup and create a new challenger series were described as horseshit by TVNZ's Scotty Stevenson on the Irish podcast Second Captains. That press release sent out by World Rugby, it was word confetti of the highest order. I got to the end of it, um, and even then my brain hurt and I felt violated. Um, it's just nonsense. The whole thing is nonsense. The boys are about to call, let's open something. You know, or what's already open? You know, that's yeah, the question. Yeah. That's I waste not what not. And why the hell not? Well, whatever fueled that from Scotty Stevenson, plenty of other people have also been saying that the game's gone in the wrong direction and that would be a worry for the media, and specifically for Sky Sports, who have staked a fortune on that. In 2019, Sky TV paid an estimated $500 million to retain the broadcast rights to All Blacks and domestic rugby for five more years, and New Zealand rugby became a shareholder in Sky TV, buying a 5% stake in it. And even bigger numbers were involved in New Zealand rugby selling a bigger stake in itself to the US-based fund Silver Lake, a deal detailed in a Business Desk podcast series called Pieces of Silver. I wondered why I didn't quite feel the pain of previous All Blacks failures. This didn't seem to sting as much as in the past. Was I feeling less in love with rugby? Between catching waves, I wondered what lay ahead for rugby in New Zealand. Little did I know, or realise that wheels were already turning. Well, that was the voice of Trevor McEwen, a veteran sports editor who's also held senior executive positions at New Zealand Rugby and worked with MediaWorks and Sky TV. So this week I asked Trevor if the current backlash about boring and overly refed rugby was a problem and are the broadcasters that bankrolled it actually the solution? Yeah, hi Colin. I, I, look, I think it's justified on a couple of counts. I think one is the inherent role of the media to reflect what the fan is saying and what commentators are saying. Secondly, because it's largely true. Admittedly, we tend to look at these World Cups through the filter of a successful or otherwise campaign from the All Blacks, but this felt a bit different. When you've got figures inside rugby and inside the All Blacks, a twinned with the likes of 
Scotty Stevenson say from the sports media and then, you know, general commentators like Mike Hosking or whoever else that this is a kind of awful spectacle and terrible viewing. That is something the media's got to worry about, don't they, for the future of the game as a media product? Oh, look, absolutely. And it's not just New Zealanders who, who are saying this, like uh, the great boxing adage of styles make fights. You know, uh, uh, you know the Muhammad Ali approach versus somebody else who's more blood, the, the George Foreman type thing. The game used to be weighted that it just came down to teams' ability who, who could impose their style on the other. It's not like that anymore. It's it, it's a lottery. Your you you know your checklist now for a game as a fan ahead of the game is not only who's the referee, who's the TMO, and and who's the faceless guy that makes the decision to upgrade a yellow from red, who we don't even know who that guy is. They don't tell us. And how many minutes are we going to play with less than fifteen men? For, for a world rugby to oversee a game that a game of lumbering Godzillas where in, in fact the sledgehammer approach if you like is the best way to win a game or other ways um, just don't succeed because it's too much is against you that's not good for the game it's madness Colin but isn't it broadcast in the end that kind of bankrolls the whole thing so the media could play a role in fixing or changing this so if rugby is as broken as these um, commentators and rugby figures are saying, doesn't the media hold the cards if, if, to get that changed? Yes, yes, they do. But the Northern Hemisphere press and media and Southern Hemisphere uh, press and media are at odds philosophically as much as the, the, the unions themselves are. Those in the North don't see any problem. Um, they will look at this World Cup and say, look at the sellouts. Look at our Six Nations selling out every, every you know, look at every game going down to the wire. Um, they they will point to this. Uh, now, press tend to fall into those same two camps. And I think the, the reality is, though, that um, the North hold the power, Colin. I don't see any willingness for um, world rugby to tackle the issues that this World Cup has raised. You know, fans see uh, rugby as, you know, sport and, and and also, I guess, as TV entertainment, particularly if they're Sky TV uh, subscribers and that company. You know, as you've shown in your series, uh, Pieces of Silver, and, and in a sense, it's a media story too, in that you have figures like, say, Brent Impey, a long-time boss at MediaWorks, becoming chair of the New Zealand Rugby Union and almost trying to do the same deal. Like MediaWorks was, you know, sold to American investment funds and with Silver Lake, yep. you know, you have New Zealand Rugby doing the same, selling part of itself to a fund based in the US. To the credit of those people that Paul Macbeth and I did interview, they were uh, very open, uh, very, very direct. It became, as we got more deeply into it, greater alarm about the wider New Zealand rugby ecosystem and how broken it is. At all levels, again, going back to Silver Lake, one of the great failings that is obvious even before you listen to something like the podcast is that lots of people felt like they were left out of the tent, none more so than the Players Association. And business as usual worldwide in the space of broadcasters working directly with sports, that, that's just commonplace. Across the ditch, we see it with Fox Sports and the AFL and the NFL and that symbiotic nature of understanding um, what works and working closely together. Sky TV here is saying, hey, we pump in hundreds of millions. We're the financial lifeblood of this game. And similarly, around the world, other broadcasters who have the exclusive rights and are doing doing the same, 
are they in a position to be able to tell the powers that be in world rugby, like, make this a better product for television or, you know, we're off? Um, do they have that power? Well, perversely, the people who have the most power uh, to do that, um, Colin, are the silver lakes of this world. And the, and, the, and the CVCs, the you know the European-based um, private equity group who who have bought into Northern Hemisphere rugby, it's prone in a way FIFA uh, and others aren't to being taken over by either the, the Saudis or um, a Silver Lake or a CVC or a combination of private equity groups who want to recut the landscape and. Uh, the, the most power is really in the hands of the private equity companies and what they do and whether they decide is this a sport that can take off or not. And that's where I find Silver Lake very interesting um, because they're an American company. I, I think they'd be totally confused. They wouldn't even know what the hell they were watching out there because, you know, we're seasoned rugby uh, watchers. We couldn't understand it. So good luck to them. And finally, Trevor, if we were to go ahead four years, you know, the next World Cup, do you think there will still be fans watching it on Sky TV, but there'll still be these sort of gripes about the, the, the game needs to be fixed and everyone blaming world rugby, that people inside and outside the game complaining in the media that it's not the product that should be for a big sporting showcase. There's two parts to that, Colin. And, you know, the first is in the hands of world rugby. Do they stop the time wasting? Do they stop the forensic technology overkill? Do they take the game back to what we used to remember as, was rugby? I mean, we can't even celebrate a try now because we have to wait to see if it's going to get past the TMO gatekeeper first. New Zealand rugby will definitely be in better shape in four years if it does that. Whether the game overall is because the of the competing agendas and the self-interest, particularly of the northern nations, I'm less confident of. That was Trevor McEwen, a veteran sports journalist and editor who's also held senior executive positions at New Zealand Rugby and worked with MediaWorks and Sky TV. And Trevor's currently the writer on the business of sport at Business Desk and the host of its podcast series Pieces of Silver, a deep dive into the deal done by New Zealand Rugby recently to sell a stake in itself to the US-based investment fund Silver Lake. Last week on Midweek Media Watch, our weekly catch-up with Knights each Wednesday here on RNZ National, I looked at how the story of Aaron Layton had been back in the news, eight years after it was first aired by TVNZ's Sunday show, and 15 years after she was abused as a teenager by a man called Paul Bennett. Now, earlier this month, Bennett and a woman whose name is still suppressed were found guilty of giving Erin ecstasy and indecently assaulting her when she was a teenager back in 2008. But suppression orders had prevented the media from reporting details of the case until now. However, Erin Layton waived the name suppression automatically granted to victims of sex crimes to tell TVNZ about her frustration that Bennett and the woman who was also charged with the crimes were in Australia, yet police had not acted to have them extradited and charged. I felt out of control over those 15 years. Like, you kind of just get pushed around in the system and it's hard being a victim. And I think a little bit of taking my power back was being able to stand up and front them up and kind of put on this front that I'm not scared of them. And so that was part of my um, my tactics as a survivor. <laughs> now, Paul Bennett was also the subject of plenty of other news stories in 2020 when he was also tried for fraud after he skipped to Australia in a stolen yacht. But Bennett wasn't tried for the sexual assault of Erin Layton until after those fraud prosecutions and TBNZ Sunday show had aired Erin's story. 
and that program and the court case have both ended up at the heart of a complicated legal and ethical conflict which prompted the former Sunday show producer Chris Cook to quit TVNZ. Now, Erin Layton gave TVNZ an interview for that Sunday show on the understanding that it would remain confidential and off the record, but footage from it ended up being played in the Auckland District Court as part of Paul Bennett's defence. Last week, Chris Cook told the New Zealand Herald that TVNZ had breached a promise to keep that interview confidential. Chris Cook said that he had urged TVNZ to challenge the decision and to honour a specific commitment it had made to Erin Layden that it would appeal to a higher court to prevent the release of the interview footage if necessary. And he also told the Herald... It was clear there were grounds to appeal the district court decision. I was disgusted. After I sat through that hearing, I resigned. Now, for its part, a TVNZ spokesperson told the Herald that initially it had opposed the release of the footage, but in the end it was compelled by the courts to provide specific material for the purposes of a fair trial. Given the verdicts received at District Court and Court of Appeal, we did not appeal further. But last week, the Herald's Katie Harris and David Fisher reported an internal TVNZ email showed that TVNZ eventually decided not to appeal to higher courts to keep the material private, in spite of a promise it had made to Erin Layton that it would. The former TVNZ producer Chris Cook said, a precedent now remains which enables this to happen again, and that means a source could never be completely confident that if they speak to the media about a matter that might end up in court, what they say might end up in evidence and not tied up in the vaults. And Chris Cook and Erin Layton are both pushing for a so-called shield law to ensure that journalists can guarantee the confidentiality of off-the-record interviews and information from sources. And in this, they have the support of Jennifer Nelson, an attorney for the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press in Washington, D.C. There is no federal shield law in the United States that applies nationwide. Every state has its own either law or recognized privilege that offers journalists at least some protection from subpoenas, confidential source information, unpublished work product, off-the-record conversations, things of that nature. There are steps that can be taken to overcome the privilege in the United States, but usually it's it's somewhat of a high bar. Uh, they have to show that they couldn't get the information from anyone else, that it is material to the case and whether the case is civil or criminal. There's a recognition within these shield laws that there is a public interest in encouraging the disclosure of newsworthy information. And where a journalist can be compelled to provide information or testify against an individual that has served as a source, there's a chilling effect that can occur. It makes someone less likely to talk to a journalist in the future. Well, the U.S. legal system and even media conventions are probably fairly different in some fundamental ways. You've got your constitution, of course, First Amendment rights, things like that. We hear about cases where evidence can be sealed and unsealed. But if we were to try and introduce a shield law that would work, what do you think are the fundamental things that that law would have to say? A law should provide a mechanism by which a journalist who served with a legal document ordering them to testify can file some sort of motion or, you know, sort of protest 
uh, stating that they should not have to be subject to uh, a subpoena or a legal process by which they'll be required to testify in court. But those cases should be the outliers rather than the norm. When I've talked to other journalists about this particular case involving Aaron Layton and Chris Cook here, they have that reaction like, goodness me, if an assurance was given to a source, you know, we ought to be able to have the option of, you know, going to prison if we need to, to protect the confidentiality of that source. Uh, It's that important and that fundamental. However, others have said, well, if we now know the law can be used in this way and uh, some of this off-the-record material could end up in a court case, surely the media should just be smart here and not keep this information in a discoverable form. Incentivizing journalists to delete their notes or off-the-record statements could potentially be problematic. They need those notes, that information for future reporting, or if a lawsuit is filed against them for another reason, a defamation lawsuit. Um, In the United States here, having evidence that a reporter has done their due diligence in reporting and that they were not negligent in their reporting is really key information in defending against a defamation claim. That really shouldn't be the case. And indeed, I suppose the source as well should have the option of like, okay, with the passage of time or other events, Maybe I want to put that on the record and they should have the right, the media uh, outlet, to then put it on the record and publish it. Of course. If some amount of time has passed and a source has changed their mind and having the details of that prior conversation is is incredibly important. I still don't think it it solves the problem of the chilling effect on sources. Having shield laws in place provides sources with a level of confidence that they can trust. Not only will the journalists keep their promise to them, but that there is a process by which they can object to having to turn over this type of information. You're on the side of the the public interest that favours disclosure and the media's role in disclosing things in a functioning democracy and all of that. But look, isn't there, Jen, also a wider public interest here, which we need to consider? So in the case of Erin Layton, In the TVNZ interview, the lawyers for both the defendants wanted to highlight discrepancies between comments that Aaron had made um, during a police interview way back in 2008 and what was in the interview that she gave seven years later uh, to uh, TVNZ. So if that is evidence that might uh, be required for, you know, a fair trial and and cross-examination, then isn't there a wider public interest that perhaps the media shouldn't have the right to withhold information that might change the outcome of a trial. I understand that point of view completely. There is a balancing test when it comes to the application of a shield law. But I don't think that that is necessarily a good argument to say that there should be no privilege at all, because it would be a privilege that could be overcome if the public interest required it. That was Jennifer Nelson, an attorney for the Reporters Committee for the Freedom of the Press in Washington, D.C. Now, after The Herald recently revealed how Erin Layton's off-the-record interview with TBNZ ended up being aired in court as part of her abuser's defence, the reporter who conducted the interview, Ian Sinclair, wrote to The Herald to say he was surprised to see journalism experts in the paper's story telling The Herald that TBNZ could simply have erased the confidential stuff. And he went on to write this. I believe the video was wrongfully seized by a judicial system that should realise democracy depends on the rights of journalists to protect their sources. 
and journalism teachers should know that reporters must be able to save material they can't use at first in case they do need it later. And essentially, that's what Jennifer Nelson was saying earlier from Washington, D.C. But among his former colleagues at TBNZ is producer Chris Cook, who, as we heard earlier, resigned from TBNZ over what he said was the broken promise to Erin Layton. And Chris is now pushing for the sort of shield laws that they have in the US states and also several states in Australia. So this week I asked Chris Cook what change to the law might actually make a difference. You know, a precedent has been created with the release of this footage, so... I would imagine, yeah, that others facing charges before the court will move to, you know, obtain unbroadcast or unprinted material, looking for anything that will help them. And, yeah, it will have, I think, a, a chilling effect. That's why I believe a case needs to be mounted in the Supreme Court to challenge and overturn this. Uh, the Evidence Act, a different piece of law, um, you know, does have a, a presumption supporting a journalist's relationship with the source. Uh, so you know, that's supported in the way uh, that it's not uh, with this, um, this piece of law governing disclosure on court cases. Do you envisage something really tight, completely binding that will make it clear to judges that they don't have much room to manoeuvre? Is that what you want in a shield law for New Zealand? I believe a shield law should confer absolute protection because, you know, protecting unpublished and confidential information from disclosure in any court proceeding. Journalists should be able to retain off the record information without fear of seizure and that, I mean, what's on the record today may be important information that in time can be reported on. Journalism relies on being able to receive and impart information. The situation can't allow to be continue as it is. And so do you think actually if the law is changed, so that law that, that governs discovery, exchange of evidence before a trial, you know, if it doesn't have the same starting presumption uh, about a journalist's relationship with the sources, the Evidence Act, if, if it works, a shield law, uh, a change to maybe the existing law used in this case, will bring the both laws into line. Yeah, it's it, about bringing those two laws into line, the you know Criminal Procedures Act and, and the protections so-called protections that sit there in the Evidence Act. Even under those um, laws, Section 68 about sources, Section 69 about confidential information, it looks like there's a right to protect journalists. But the reality is that courts keep granting uh, orders, well, against journalists. In the the eyes of the court, so-called fair trial rights, it seems, will always trump our rights as journalists to keep confidences. The bar is just too low, even in this case with Erin, and that's why I believe like the Supreme Court case, you know, it, it needs to be taken. TVNZ needs to take it. If they don't, somebody else should. I mean, it may be something I, I could even look at with the help of, uh, uh, I guess, a, a lawyer. You know, but, but they're also obliged to comply by a court order, aren't they? If TVNZ considered they were complying with a court order, they were doing the right thing, and that a, a challenge further you know, upwards towards Supreme Court wouldn't have been effective if that was their legal advice or the opinion of their in-house counsel, doesn't that kind of tie the hands of um, you know, the people above you at TVNZ at that time? Well, you're talking right at the end, once there's been a decision made by the court, talking about what happened in the court, the decision of the judges, yes, and and that it's challengeable. Uh, There is opportunity to challenge it by appealing, and that's the whole issue, that uh, didn't happen with the district court decision, there was no appeal, The, the footage was given over, and the court of appeal decision Again, there's no challenge for the Supreme Court. And it's such an important issue that, that it should be challenged. 
What about that argument that there's also a wider public interest here, uh, which is served by allowing defendants, legal teams to access potentially confidential stuff that the media hold, which could be relevant uh, in the case of a trial, which could be important in guaranteeing um, a fair trial when the stakes are high? Well, you you can't, uh, it's a direct clash of rights, really. I mean, you can't have that public interest being served and also serve the public interest of journalists being able to do their job and honour off-the-record commitments. I mean, one case such as this, Aaron's case, has a crippling wide impact. I mean, I believe the wider, higher public interest sits in maintaining the trust in the media because of its important role. I mean, journalism relies on people coming forward with information and that requires trust and sometimes that can involve keeping things confidential and if there can't be certainty that journalists can keep off the record and promises then the public's not going to come forward and important stories can't, won't be told. Giving information and us being a part of a police process or a, a court process, I mean it, we can't be seen to be used as an arm of the state by providing information to law enforcement or the courts. I mean, the public's reaction to that happening is mistrust, which is devastating to what we do. But yourself and Erin Layton have also met with Melissa Lee. She's the long-serving broadcasting and media spokesperson for the National Party, uh, possibly uh, the next minister in a national-led government. What, What did she have to say, if you're able to disclose that? Well, the meeting was a start. You know, she understands the importance of journalists being able to keep off-the-record commitments and maintaining trust in the media. She gave us a lot of her time, and we agreed to talk again. And finally, uh, Chris, yourself and your former colleague Ian Sinclair, you know, you, you both feel clearly let down by TVNZ. You, you quit TVNZ over this after many, many years with the organisation as a producer and a journalist. I suppose in the end, do you still feel this really is about Erin? You know, because this is a person who waived her own uh, right to keep herself anonymous um, as the victim of, of crime, finds that, um, you know, her own confidentiality breached in another way because she's dealt with a media organisation. What happened to Erin wasn't acceptable, and that's why I resigned, because a promise was made to her, and I was um, the person at the forefront of that, having to deliver that message to a you know, a victim of sexual assault, so just entirely unacceptable situation. But I hope that's righted, and I hope an apology is delivered to Erin Layton. That was former TVNZ current affairs producer Chris Cook, who resigned from TVNZ after parts of an interview with Erin Layton that he'd helped arrange back in 2015 on condition of confidentiality ended up being aired in court as part of the defence of two people subsequently found guilty of sexually abusing her and plying her with a Class B drug. As we heard earlier on Media Watch, rugby fans were a bit bitter about refereeing on the pitch and in the TMO's bunker during the Rugby World Cup final last weekend. One of many in the media with opinions on that was ZB's Canterbury Mornings host, John McDonald. Robots or artificial intelligence would be much better for making the calls on things like whether a yellow card is upgraded to a red card. If they reckon lawyers could be replaced one day by artificial intelligence, why not match officials as well? And given what happened on Sunday in Paris, artificially intelligent rugby referees might strike some all-black fans right now as not the end of the world. But 
Some say that is a very real prospect if AI really does take over. This week, the UK's Prime Minister Rishi Sunak hosted a summit on the dangers of AI at Bletchley Park, the site of the celebrated Enigma code-breaking effort that was so important in World War II. The UK government said that they hoped the presence of the world's richest ever entrepreneur Elon Musk would attract international attention. And on arrival in the UK, Musk told reporters this about the possibility of AI wiping us all out. There is some chance that at above zero that AI will fill us all. I think it's low, but there's some chance. Um, I think we should also consider the fragility of human civilization. Um, and if you study history... Uh, and you realize that there's, there's a rise and fall to every civilization. Every civilization has a, a sort of a, a lifespan. Yet Musk himself seems to have dramatically shortened the lifespan of one part of his business empire, the micro-blogging social media platform Twitter, which was much used by the media because it turned out to be a really powerful way of spreading and sharing news online and commenting on it. But since Musk paid $44 billion US dollars for Twitter last year, he's made a series of changes, including a name change to X, which have slashed the company's financial value by more than half and destroyed most of the platform's value to its users, including the media. Indeed, last Wednesday, a bunch of media folks met in Auckland to host a wake for Twitter and bury the bird, the bird being Twitter's distinctive logo, until Musk replaced it with an ugly black letter X. Now, Mr Musk himself couldn't make the bury the bird do in Auckland last week. He was busy at Bletchley Park preparing for the AI Safety Summit. But Media Watch's Hayden Donnell was there at the bury the bird event in Auckland on Wednesday. And he asked two local social media entrepreneurs on the panel that night, is it really game over now for the platform that Elon Musk has mangled? Twitter specifically belongs to a particular era of social media networking. That was of a time and place. I think what we see now is the rise of video in an enormous way, in a way that's kind of all-consuming and also an entire generation's mode of communication. It's kind of fragmented in a way that Twitter never was. The thing about Twitter is I think it is now past the point where it can evolve. The thing that, the, that a lot of people forget about Twitter is that most of what we think about as its core functionality, things like retweets, things like hashtags, they were all created by its users and the people running it responded to that. Musk has completely inverted that and now he's handing down these edicts that make it objectively worse. And I think that's where it's going to run into a wall. That was the former host of Media Watch and current listener columnist Russell Brown and the spin-offs Anna Rafferty Connell at Bury the Bird, an event in Auckland chewing over what went wrong with Twitter, the platform formerly much used and much loved by the media, but now called X under the new and disastrous management of Elon Musk. And next weekend here on Media Watch, you can hear much more of what they had to say about that and also others at the Bury the Bird event about where social media is heading now. We'll be back with more on the media also on Midweek Media Watch after the news at 10 next Wednesday night on Nights with Mark Leishman and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.